Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. For those of you listening to this sermon, we have already looked at Scriptures, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. We have looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. We've looked at Jude, verses 12 through 19. We've looked at Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. 1 Peter chapter 4. In those passages of Scripture that were just read to you, there was a great contrast made. Wow! The Lord Jesus Christ ascending from heaven in flaming fire with His mighty angels to wreak vengeance on all them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ upon one group of people and the others, they will admire Him in that day. When they see the Lord Jesus, what a difference. Jude, oh, the Lord coming from heaven with ten thousands of His saints or His angels. The word saint there, what's a saint? It's a sanctified one. Those are the angels that descend with the Lord coming upon the wicked, the ungodly, their ungodly speeches, their hard speeches that they've said against the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a day coming in which a great difference is going to be made in the human race. As Jesus Christ will bring vengeance, fiery trials and tribulations of an enduring eternal nature upon the wicked. Revelation chapter 14, the 144,000 is described in another place. They're a figurative, symbolic group of people. Don't go join the Jehovah's Witnesses because we just read Revelation 14 about the 144,000. There are 12,000 sealed from each tribe. They are the first fruits of the converts to the gospel of Jesus Christ among the Jews. And it is purely symbolic. They are pure and virgins because they did not compromise the truth. It is spiritual language. Don't start thinking of nuns of the Catholic Church or some ridiculous interpretation. Forgive me. I don't want to talk about Revelation 14 except after that first fruits of the Lamb. The first fruits of the Lamb were not Gentiles. The Gospel went first to the Jews. I am not sent to the lost, but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Gospel was first preached in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And halfway through that prophecy, we moved to an angel describing the everlasting Gospel preached in the whole world, where those from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation followed the Lamb and obeyed the gospel, and the warning to them is, do not worship the beast. The beast is the Roman Catholic Church, as it's described in chapters 12, 13, and 17, and 18, more perfectly, where John follows up on what Daniel already gave us in Daniel chapter 7 about the little horn of Rome, and Paul gave us the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Do not associate yourself with that church, but come out of her, my people, that ye be not partaker of her plagues. And those that did, those that are part of that big religious monstrosity in the world, will be tormented with fire in the presence of the Lamb and of the angels of God forever and ever. And the smoke of their torment will ascend up. That is the Word of God. Here we have 1 Peter chapter 4. Thinking of that great difference between those spotless ones that serve the Lord Jesus Christ in fidelity around His throne and those that are suffering torment 
and the smoke of their torment ascending forever. The great difference we have right here in the last three verses of 1 Peter 4. Verse 17, For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing as unto a faithful Creator. Amen and Amen. The lesson that we gathered from verses 12 through 16 was pretty simple. Suffering, persecution, opposition, and enmity is part of following Jesus Christ and part of obeying and following the gospel. By doing so, you get to partake of the sufferings that He went through for you. You should not think it strange, unusual, discouraging, uh, confusing. You should rejoice in the fact that you are allowed such a privilege to suffer, suffer for Jesus Christ's sake and for the gospel's sake. When you're reproached, when you're made fun of or ridiculed because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, don't worry, the Lord's going to take care of you. The Spirit of God and of glory is going to be resting on you. The Spirit of God and of glory is going to be strengthening you in your inner man for what's happening to you because you're suffering. God knows you're suffering better than we know it. He sees all that. And He supplies day by day, 2 Corinthians 4.16, the necessary strength to bear up under those trials. They can speak evil of Him. We're going to glorify Him by suffering for Him. But we never want to suffer for any cause but for the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want them to have anything on us, whether it is legally wrong, scripturally wrong, or socially wrong. That's what that 15th verse had for us. Yet, if we end up suffering as a Christian, look what it says, let him not be ashamed. Let's be like Timothy with Paul's exhortation there in 2 Timothy chapter 1, don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. I may be in prison. They may cut off my head. But you are preaching a glorious gospel. Let's hold it fast because it involves transactions that took place before the world began. When God chose us in Christ Jesus and invested His grace and His purpose in us. And He has abolished death for us through Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's glorify God on this behalf of suffering. The lesson from this morning is this simple. Let us go down for one cause and one cause only. If we are ever put on trial, which we don't see imminently happening yet, but it could, if we're put on trial, let's be found blameless like the Apostle Paul, like the Lord Jesus, like Stephen the deacon, let us be found blameless. We have not disturbed the peace. We have not been evildoers. We have not spoke seditiously. We are not murderers. We are not thieves. We are socially acceptable. We are very busy and productive in our lives. We do not wander about. We don't use the telephone, Facebook, or social media to dig into people's lives or to pull up junk about other people because we are Christians. Let's go down for the cause of Christ. That's the lesson from this morning. This second lesson is very simple. You persecuted brethren, 
It's God's will. And the time has come for a person... I'm speaking to the uh, five regions mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 1 as if I were Peter. Brethren, the time has come that greater persecution, afflictions, trials, tribulations, imprisonment, and death is coming your direction. And if God allows that to happen to you, just imagine what He is going to do to your enemies. There is comfort in the fact that the worst hell believers ever have is now. The best heaven unbelievers ever have is right now. Because the Lord is going to make a difference that is staggering. If it first began at us in this world, what is going to happen in the next world to the wicked? And so there is comfort to go through that suffering and there's encouragement that don't worry, the Lord will take care of your enemies. There's a lot wrapped up in this contrast that is given in verses 17 and 18. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, if by looking at their lives you see so much tribulation, trials, persecutions, being pulled apart on the rack, fed to lions and birds at stake, if the righteous scarcely be saved, if it doesn't look like there's a God intervening on their behalf, imagine where will the wicked appear? Because those righteous souls will appear in the presence of, the, of God of heaven and in the presence of the Lamb to be forever with Him. But where will the wicked appear? And wherefore, based on that, based on that comparison, that contrast made in verses 17 and 18, wherefore, let them that suffer, you suffering audience in Asia Minor, submit the keeping of your souls to God. It's the will of God for you to suffer. Give Him, commend to Him, commit to Him the keeping of your souls and spirits because He's a faithful Creator. And while you're doing that, continue on in well-doing. Just keep right on doing what is well because that is the testimony that you'll want when you stand before Him. Let's look at this 16th verse. The 17th verse, excuse me. 17th verse, we have three verses to cover. For the time has come. Peter was in a... Apostle, which means he had the gift of prophecy, and the Lord inspired him here. There have been various persecutions of varying intensity throughout the history of the world, and the apostle knew that things were going to get worse. They killed, they killed Paul. They ended up killing Peter. Nero was the Caesar during this period of time. The wrath against Christians was very great. He used them as torches in his gardens. Peter knew that. Peter prophesied of it, and he was directing his people to prepare themselves and to arm themselves with a mind to be ready for it. Your times are in God's hand. Nothing ever happens to you that God has not planned for you, that isn't in God's will for your life. His sovereign government of the world means that whenever there are negative events, you can know He planned those, even if it was your stupid fault. He allowed you to be stupid and at fault for that particular event in order to get Himself greater glory in your profit if you'll learn from the lesson. That is comfort right there. Just to read the words, for the time is come, because it's God's will. Verse 19 tells us, if they suffer according to the will of God, everything is under the will of God. Known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. Every trouble that you have in your life is part of what He has orchestrated for your life, designed for your life, to perfect you and to get Himself glory. And so that's comfort 
already in just knowing that. This matter of fiery trials was not distant to them. Though it might appear to be distant to us, we don't know the future. But whether it comes in our lifetimes or our children's lifetimes or not, let us be prepared to have the same mindset. Let's look forward to persecution so the little bit that we get that is not of a civil sort, but is more of a family sort, a colleague sort at work, a neighborly sort, as we get ridiculed or reproached that way, let's have the mind of Christ, let's have the mind of Peter, let's have the mind of Paul about it, which is what we're learning today. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. The house of God in the New Testament is the church of Jesus Christ. These people, these Jews, were separated 600 miles from the Old Testament house. God had this, it was no longer the house of God. The temple in Jerusalem was no longer the house of God. Does anyone know where you would turn in the Bible to show that? Jesus one time had entered the temple, drove out the money changers, and said, you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. But the last time he left the temple, Matthew chapter 23, he said, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. It's, it wasn't the house of God. The house of God are the churches of Jesus Christ. These were Christians. These were Jews being addressed as Christians. Judgment must begin at the house of God. Now what had they done wrong that they needed God to come along and pound them for? Nothing. If judgment had to begin with the churches of Jesus Christ, what was the judgment? Was it punishment for wrongdoing? No. Was it chastening for wrongdoing? No. That's why I asked you earlier when we started in verse 12 that you would watch the words very closely. It is a trial of their faith. It wasn't punishment. It wasn't judgment in the sense of punishment. It wasn't judgment in the sense of chastening. It was judgment in the sense of a trial of their faith. It was a determining set of circumstances brought about on their lives to prove their Christian character like gold is proven. Just like we had in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. This is the, this is the trickiest part, verse, word, clause that we have today. It's what does that word judgment mean? And that word judgment, we intuitively jump to the fact it's punishment. If we know the Bible well, we think it's chastening. It's neither. There isn't a thing spoken in here about them doing anything wrong. They are told in numerous different ways that this was a trial of their faith. And so this word judgment are negative events being thrown at them for the trial of their faith. You say, well, is the word judgment... Listen, the word judgment is used in a variety of ways. Does the Bible speak of having good judgment? Now, that's a pretty big difference, isn't it? Is it the word judgment? Does it have anything to do with punishment? No. I want you to come back to 1 Corinthians 11. And while this is not a perfect cross-reference because it is talking about chastening, it will show us the variety in the use of the word judgment. In 1 Corinthians 11, there were Corinthian church members that were weak, some were sick, and some were dead and buried in the church cemetery. They had these three problems because they had abused the Lord's Supper and were not keeping it the way in which it had been given to them. I want to read to you beginning at verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation. Now that is a strong word. 
He that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. We can come in here and abuse the Lord's Supper, and we're basically toasting our damnation. Not in hell. God's judgment upon us in this life, because it's it's the weakness and sickness and early death that was the consequence. Verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. You've had people die prematurely, and many of you are in the hospital, and many of you are bedridden at home, because you have eaten and drank unworthily. That doesn't mean that everybody that's in the hospital, or everybody that's bedridden at home, or everyone that has a physical malady has abused the Lord's Supper. I hope I don't need to say that, but I said it anyway because I've learned. Verse 31, For if we would judge ourselves, notice, judge, if we would judge ourselves, that's self-examination. We should not be judged. That's the chastening of the Lord. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. It's a wonderful passage. Christians can be killed early by the Lord. Christians can be made sick by the Lord. They can be made weak by the Lord because they're not obeying Him. But it's proof of their eternal life that they will not be condemned with the world. And the judgment is defined as chastening by the Lord Himself, by the Holy Spirit, And the word judgment also is previously used to describe self-examination. But this word judgment, we're back at 1 Peter 4.17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. It is suffering. It is suffering. It's been mentioned in every chapter. It's suffering that was introduced in verse 1 of chapter 4. Paul Peter has progressed along in his explanation, 12, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial. It is a trial of their faith that is coming. He has already explained this trial of faith in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, that it is not punishment for past wrongdoing, and that it is not current chastening for wrongdoing. It is a trial of their faith so that they might partake of Christ's sufferings. Jesus was never chastened. We could go on and on. The proofs the proofs of this point can be multiplied indefinitely, but this is the trickiest verse. Because when you read, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, it, it disrupts the passage if you put punishment or chastening into the passage. It is suffering for the cause of Christ. Because that is the context, and I am a bond slave to context. You can learn that about me. I will interpret a verse and I will do anything I need to to make it fit its context. I will make the verses fit the Bible at whole and I will make them fit the books that they're in and I will make them fit the sentences that are around them. The judgment dictated by the context is not death or hell, but rather persecution and suffering caused by civil magistrates and the world at large. It is far less than the judgment implied by the references to the destruction of the wicked. It is set between verses about suffering where trials are allowed by God to glorify Christ. It is not even truly chastening, but rather the perfection of Christian faith through trials. It should be understood as a trial because it's called a trial in verse 12. It should cause rejoicing without shame. It says rejoice and be exceeding glad. Should we rejoice and be exceeding glad because we're bad Christians and the Lord is chastening us? It happened to righteous Christians without any guilt for wrongdoing before God or men. Because the whole point is, if any man suffer as a Christian, you're suffering for being good. It's not that you were a murderer or a thief or a busybody 
or an evildoer. You, they weren't that way. Peter's exhorting them not to be found guilty of any of those crimes when they're called before civil government of their particular nations. It is described as reproach by wicked men that would speak evil of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's religious persecution. It was an event of judgment that produced a greater ministry of the Holy Spirit. And chastening doesn't do that. You have a lesser ministry of the Holy Spirit when you're being chastened for your sins. All my labor right now, as I struggle in the quicksand of explaining things, is that this word judgment is not punishment and it's not chastening. It's a trial of their faith. I want you to understand the passage. And if you need to write something in there, then draw a circle from trial and try in verse 12 to verse 17. If you want to see suffering according to the will of God, this was suffering that God chose for them, not that they had brought upon themselves because of their sins. That's in verse 19. There's 20 or 30 different ways that you can prove that the word judgment here is speaking. These men weren't guilty and they shouldn't be guilty of any offenses. The judgment was a determination, trial, or proving of those calling themselves Christians and allowing them the illustrious privilege of being in the company of the Lord Jesus Christ and learning what the fellowship of His sufferings were, which Paul wanted and every good Christian should want. We should rejoice and be exceeding glad if God would bring circumstances into our lives where we can suffer like our Lord suffered for us. That is what's going on in this passage. We don't want to bring in something that doesn't belong here. We will get confused. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And this word judgment is, is describing negative events of suffering and trials upon them that God would bring their way. Remember, we, first of all, we go judgment. It must be punishment. Then we go to 1 Corinthians 11 found, nope, it's not punishment, it's chastening. Then we come here and we find out that this word, because of its context, is being used to describe negative, painful, troubling Events of persecution brought about by the enemies of the gospel against these believers. You say, well, that's not the ordinary way that judgment is used. Do you want to know what the ordinary way that judgment is used in the book of Proverbs? Context dictates the definition of a word. If I ask you, what does board mean? B-O-A-R-D. Can you think of a few different things that board means? How would you know what board means? You would ask me, use it in a sentence. Then you would know what board meant. Well, God the Holy Spirit, to help you and to help me, used it in a sentence and used it in a context to tell us what this judgment was. And it it fits perfectly because from all external standpoints, from viewing these Christians, they were being judged. Because they were suffering such negativity in their lives. They were suffering such pain and trouble and trials and tribulation in their lives. But they weren't guilty of anything before God. God was just trying their faith. God was allowing them to partake in the sufferings of Christ. But from the vantage point of others, like it tells us in Philippians and and 2 Thessalonians, it is an evident token of perdition. Perdition means judgment. When the world looks at Christian suffering... They presume that that is an evident token that is proof that these Christians are under the judgment of God. An evident token of perdition. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that the Lord Jesus Christ was deserted of God. He, 
We did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. When the Jewish nation looked at the Lord Jesus Christ and saw him suffering such abuse, then his trial, then his torture, then his crucifixion, we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted by God. Do you notice all those words sounding like judgment? It was God's judgment upon him that he was enduring these things. But it wasn't God's judgment upon him. It was God's judgment for our sins. They did not understand and see the purpose and the role of of Christ the Messiah. We've got a similar situation right here. The time has come that judgment... Well, what is judgment? Go backward, go forward, go any direction you want. It is suffering, persecution as a trial of their faith. And they should submit to it in well-doing. They didn't need to change a thing. They didn't need to repent of a thing because they weren't being punished or chastened. They didn't need to be keeping the Lord's Supper better. They should just embrace the fact that the Lord was giving them a special opportunity under the judgment of trials and tribulations to partake with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go on. And if it first begin at us, oh yes, it starts with us in this world and it ends with the wicked in the next world. If it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Since that latter clause says, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? What does that tell us about those people in the first part of the verse? They do obey the gospel of God. They're the obedient children of God being tried in their faith. The question is rhetorical. What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? Think of some words. Horrific. Unbelievable. Terrible. If God sends trials of tribulations and torture, when a Christian was pulled apart slowly on the racks, when they had hot pincers pinching the tender parts of your body, red hot, burning holes in you, which one do you want to pick on first? How about having your stomach slid open and corn poured in while you're alive and wild hungry pigs set loose on you? Anybody here ever watch a pig eat? Think about it. How about a slow fire of green wood where you're burned at the stake and it takes several hours? How long did I say would it take for me to get my finger out of a match? One or two seconds? How about three hours in slow fire at your feet? How about having your mouth forced open and they pour water down and suffocate you? How about being mauled by lions and tigers in the Colosseum? All the ways of dying and the ways of torture that we heard given to us over the last year about the martyrs. If God allows that, if it's God's will to send that, if God brings that upon Christians in this world, if it's the first step of His government of the universe in the New Testament to allow that to happen to Christians, what in the world is He going to do to the wicked that are His enemies? If He does that to His children, what will He do to those that obey not the gospel of God? If you understand this verse at all, You want to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now and obey the gospel of God. And you are willing to put up with a little bit 
of trouble and difficulty in this world because what is coming in the next world will put make this look like a picnic. That is the, that is the intent of the verse. And if it first begin at us, if this fiery trial that is to try us comes upon Christians, upon the children of God, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? It is talking about the end. And you heard it read by Mark from Revelation 14. You heard it read by Joshua from Jude. You heard it read by Orville from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Flaming fire and eternal vengeance of a holy God forever. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what used to be preached from most pulpits in this great country. This is what we still believe. They've changed, but we're not changing. We're going to abide by the Word of God. And this is a rhetorical question because it should be surely understood by all Christians. Though they suffer in this world, the wicked will suffer in the next world to an unbelievable degree. If God treats those He loves this way, those that Jesus died for this way, what will He treat those that have no relationship to Jesus Christ? Repent! Let's go down for one cause. The Lord Jesus Christ. I want the evidence of eternal life when I meet Him. I want to partake of His sufferings. I want the fellowship of His sufferings. I don't want to be in that other crowd. By evidence. This is easy. It's just weighty. Verse 18 repeats it. And if the righteous scarcely be saved. You say, why would the apostle use that kind of terminology that has scared so many people over 2,000 years that the righteous are scarcely saved? Why did he use the word judgment? Because he wants to see how careful we're going to be in letting context be our master. Why did he in opening up verse 14, use a subjunctive mood about a possibility of a future event and then a present tense verb construction, happy are ye. That's indicative mood. That's present tense. Why did he do that? I love the way he wrote his word. Sometimes I sweat bullets over it and I pray often or always, whatever word you want to pick, and I hope that you'll pray for me. I love the way he's written his word. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, when you were looking at a righteous person, part of the audience that Peter addressed by this epistle, it looked horrible. God's on their side? God's going to save them? What is saved? They lost their house. They lost their family. Their kids were brutally murdered in front of them. And they had their body pulled apart. And they died in pain. Scarcely saved. There is no scarcity at all in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.10 says, And ye are complete in Him. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him. There is no scarcity. There is no shortage. There is no doubtfulness about the salvation that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. But from an outward perspective, looking upon the life of believers in the past who suffered vengeance at the hands of the civil magistrate, They were burned at the stake. They were pulled apart on racks. They were tortured in every conceivable way. It looked like they were scarcely saved if they were saved at all. It didn't look like a salvation. And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Men do not disappear. 
Where are the annihilationists when we want them? What's an annihilationist? Somebody that believes when the wicked die, they just go out of existence. Very convenient. Jehovah's Witnesses. No hell. Do you know no hell is just raging? I've tried to tell you that over the years. This nation can't accept a God that has a hell. There's so many Bible Christians out there now that there's no hell. Billy Graham, you, you should have heard Billy Graham preaching in the early 60s. Now, how, the change that's taken place in my lifetime. It didn't matter whether you are Arminian hardly. A sermon of the pulpit was still going to be fire and brimstone about God's holiness and God's judgment of sin and the terror and pain of hell, and you ought to repent. They don't preach that way anymore. But I want you to look at the verse. Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? If the righteous scarcely be saved, if they come dragging into heaven, I hope that you'll allow my language, if they come dragging into heaven... (laughs) having had their assets taken away, their family taken away, their family violated, their bodies violated. Listen, I've been so kind to you ladies. You should read the book by Samuel Moreland that was prepared for Oliver Cromwell about what took place in the northern parts and provinces of Italy under the shadow of the brothel of the Roman Catholic Church and what they did to the women. I can't tell you, but I've got pictures of it I've got drawings of it. I've got names of it. Because it was prepared for Oliver Cromwell because he asked for it. Because he wanted to be responsible for gathering the ten nations of Europe together and burning Rome to the ground to fulfill Revelation chapter 17. Now that's a different government, isn't it? When you commission a book and send a man to record the atrocities of the Roman Catholic Church against the saints of the Most High God, in the valleys of Piedmont. I'm thankful to live in the valley of Piedmont. It's similar, but we have a D and they didn't. The valleys of Piedmont of northern Italy. I haven't told you about them. If you thought I was a little too graphic, then go complain to my father. Because I've been fed stories about the martyrs since I was about five years old. You say, well, no wonder you had those nightmares at night. I never said that wasn't one of the causes. I'm just thankful for having heard those things. Martyrs of the catacombs, thank you, sister, for making that available to so many. And if the righteous scarcely be saved. Do you understand how we have to rightly divide the word of truth? The righteous are not scarcely saved. When Jesus said it is finished, do you think that he had just got the first drop over the bar that God had set for righteousness? He had just got one drop over. Or do you like Isaiah 40, the first couple of verses better? Comfort ye my people, for ye have received double from the Lord's hand for all your iniquities. The Bible is filled with the, with the plenteousness of the grace. Where sin abounded, I need to hear the words. Grace did much more abound. Don't misinterpret these verses. They look like they're barely saved. Where is their God? Rejoice! Because they said the same thing about the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. If you're the Son of God, why don't you call on Him for power and come down from the cross? When He cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They said He's crying to God. He needs Elijah or something. Do you understand that? 
From all human vantage point, the man was a loser. Jesus Christ was dying at the hands of wicked men. He couldn't have been the Son of God. These poor saints of God are are nailed to crosses themselves, drowned in rivers, fed to beasts, have snakes put into bags with them. They died in all sorts of different ways, and it did not look like they were the saved children of God. But if they're scarcely saved, what do you think is going to happen to the wicked when the Lord gets a hold of them in the day of His vengeance? So there is comfort for us. Take this little bit of suffering now because look what the wicked are going to get. And while they're killing you and you're praying for God to forgive them for killing your particular life, you can know that there is a God of vengeance in heaven. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Annihilationists. Men don't disappear. These men are going to have to appear before God. It is appointed unto men once to die and after that the judgment. That's an axiom of the Word of God. For we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Look at that word. Where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Psalm 1.5 says, They shall not stand in God's sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity in Psalm 5 and verse 5. Both Psalm 1.5 and Psalm 5.5 are nice little cross-references for this. The horrible sight of the final judgment should cause all of us to tremble and run to the Lamb and not to think anything of the little trials and tribulations that we have. When our... When it may be our parents that don't like our doctrine. When it may be our children that don't like our practice. When it may be our siblings that go their own separate way to worship God as they think is right. No matter what happens to us, no matter how we're persecuted, it is a small thing. It is a short thing. It comes first. And what comes last and what comes longest and what comes most terribly is the judgment of the wicked. Wherefore? Wherefore? Let them that suffer. This is the mindset of a suffering Christian. Wherefore, let them that suffer, according to the will of God, that's comforting right there. Listen, brethren, the sovereignty of God and God's sovereignty, the dominion of God, His control and government of the universe, that is just not some dusty doctrine for a monastery or a seminary. It is how we should practically view life. It is for our perspective. It is the will of God. And if it's God's will, it has a wonderful, perfect outcome. God's glory and your profit. And your profit can be listed in all kinds of different ways for suffering for the cause of Christ. It is the evidence of eternal life. It's confidence when you meet Him. It is the fellowship of His sufferings so that you can be like Him. It it builds your faith. It gives you a greater ministry of the Holy Spirit. There's all these advantages to embrace it. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to Him. Who's going to keep your soul? They can tear your body to shreds. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, Fear not them which kill the body. Fear not them which kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him, which after he hath killed, hath power to cast both body and soul into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. That's Jesus of the Bible. Do you think that's going down in Houston today? That's Luke 12, 4 and 5. My friends, I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear, Jesus said to his apostles. See, the wicked are going to get their bodies back. 
so that God can torment all parts of them. Cast both body and soul into hell. According to the will of God, commit the keeping of their souls. We sing a song, I know whom I have believed. It's based on 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 12, where Paul said, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What had Paul committed to Jesus Christ? His soul. His whole being. But especially that soul and spirit. He knew that men were going to be able to destroy his body. And they did shortly after he wrote Second Timothy. But they wouldn't be able to get his soul and spirit. So he committed that into the safekeeping of the Lord. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. Paul had been persuaded that he could let Nero and the Romans tear his body because God is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. In that great day of judgment, the righteous shall be saved with an everlasting, official, formal, declarative salvation, what we call the final phase, and their glorification. Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God. We don't want to suffer for anything not according to the will of God. If you're suffering for murder, theft, evil doing, or being a busybody, you're not suffering according to the will of God. We want to be suffering for the revealed will of God, and we want to be suffering under the secret will of God. We do not want to be violating Him in any way. Let them commit the keeping of their souls to Him in well-doing. When you ask the Lord to take care of you through life and death, there's only one way to be doing it, doing well. What can you do better the rest of this day? What can you do better in 2015? Because if you want the evidence, and if you want the claim, and you want the assurance and the hope that you're going to be saved with an everlasting salvation, you better keep up in well-doing. Because well-doing is the evidence of a child of God, even under the pain, penalty, and torture of this opposition to their faith. They did not give it up. Stephen, at the very end, as those fatal stones are thudding off his body, and his, his bones are being broken, and he's bleeding internally, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Is that doing well all the way through? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What is that? Committing your soul and spirit to safekeeping as a, by a faithful creator. While you're forgiving your tormentors. We have such wonderful examples in the Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ and brother Stephen ended the very same way. Commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. It mentions the creative power of God. In this salvation-type setting, it mentions the creative power of God because if God is able to create and to speak everything into existence, He can certainly take care of your soul that you commit to Him. You know, when the sun rises tomorrow morning, don't just be thankful for another day. Don't just be thankful that your wristwatch knows that it's another day. Be thankful that God is faithful and He's brought another day 
to prove His faithfulness because it's that faithfulness over things far greater than you that He's going to keep your little soul and your little spirit. As the seasons come and go, as winter comes on and it gets colder, and then it's going to get warmer in spring, just remember that He's the Creator and He's got the power to keep your soul. And men can tear you apart, but after they kill the body, they have no more that they can do. And He can preserve what escapes that body at the moment of death and keep it forever. And I read that heaven right now is a place of the spirits of just men made perfect. In Hebrews 12, 23. And oh brethren, now now there's only one thing left for you to answer. Is He a faithful Creator? Amen, Amen, brother. Did He promise eternal life before the world began? Is He a God that cannot lie? For the greater comfort and assurance of our souls, did He swear with an oath? Oh, we have an anchor for our souls. We have an anchor for our souls. The winds and waves of persecution, tribulation, trials, pain, and torment can come and bounce us all over. And even the Apostle Paul was bounced around from time to time. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said he despaired. Luke said in Acts chapter 27 that all hope was gone. Sometimes even the best of men get discouraged as they're tossed in the waves of negative circumstances of life. But there's a faithful Creator. And you can commit your soul to Him. And it's an anchor to know the Word of God, to know the promises that are there, and to believe on them. Mm -hmm. You know, we've told the Lord this, and I hope it's your heart right now. Father in heaven, I thank Thee for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thank Thee for the written revelation about Him. And I am betting my life in this world and my life in the next world on what You have written about Him. He is a great and a glorious Savior. You're a great and glorious God. If you were to send my soul to hell, Thy righteous law approves it well. But, O Lord, remember mercy. God of all mercy, have mercy upon me through Jesus Christ my Lord. He will. He shall. And you'll be saved with an everlasting salvation. All glory to God through Jesus Christ and never be afraid of their torment or of your adversaries, and let us stand fast together with one mind, one heart, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.